Hello everyone. Thanks for listening to Come Follow Me Insights with Taylor and Tyler presented by Scripture Central. We use a lot of visuals in our videos, so if you want to see the visuals, we invite you to find us on YouTube. Thanks for listening and enjoy. I'm Taylor. And I'm Tyler. This is Scripture Central's Come Follow Me Insights. Today, the Epistle to the Galatians. This epistle is a ride. From, from the first chapter through the end of the book, it takes us on this incredible, fast-paced, um, rapid-fire journey. It's almost as if Paul is panicked to get this letter written and delivered to these people in Galatia. Uh, if you wanted to give yourself one possible label for this entire epistle, it could be called Paul's Declaration of Independence from the Law of Moses. You'll notice that he uses the word free or freedom 11 times in this, in this epistle, and he, the guns really are blazing in this one in that he is rapid fire pushing back against this Judaizer movement that is trying to get these new Gentile converts to then go back in time and adopt the law of Moses, all of the dietary, the clothing restrictions, the law of circumcision, all of these these laws given to Moses to then be fully Christian. That's kind of their message. So it's as if Paul gets word that in in Galatia, and keep in mind, we don't know if this is just southern Galatia where where he and Barnabas went on their first missionary journey up to Antioch of Pisidia, over to Iconium and then Derbe and Lystra. That's southern part of, of Gaul, or if it's the northern part, there's a lot of there's a lot of potential evidence to point to this southern Galatia, which would make this a fairly early epistle because that big debate between the, the Judaizers in Jerusalem and Paul and Barnabas and his missionary companions and others who have been out among the Greco-Romans, and you get that first major uh, conference discussing this in Jerusalem back in Acts chapter 15. It's possible some scholars like N.T. Wright, they surmise that this letter was one of possibly his very first letters written even before they left uh, to go down to Jerusalem for that conference to have it out and make this decision. What do we do? Because some people are bullying our new converts, making them feel like they have to become proselytes to Judaism before they can fully be considered uh, Christian. It's important to recognize that anciently, particularly in the Greco-Roman world, religion for most people was something that you were born into. Now, definitely people were proselyted or converted into other religions. We have the case of Christianity. But Judaism in particular was primarily a religion you were born into. So the idea that you could have people joining the group that weren't originally Jewish would have struck a lot of people as odd. And just for a moment to offer perhaps a little bit of empathy to the Judaizers, some of them probably had good intentions. They probably were raised in this, their ancestors for, gosh, how many hundreds of years had all lived a certain way. And the belief was, well, to be aligned with God, you have to live like this. Now, this gets to our day. 
We have the restored gospel of Jesus Christ in its plainness and its fullness. We have to ask ourselves, are there, are there ever moments where we insist that others live the way we want them to, or that others put infringements upon us saying, we want you to live the way we want you to live? And we have to be clear, like Paul, that first and foremost, we have to be aligned to God and the simplicity of the gospel and not let imposed culture that doesn't save be the requirement to prove that we are part of God's kingdom. And this is really what gets Paul so exercised. He really, he, can you imagine sitting there while he's writing this? I, I could imagine he would be. He's, he's hot under the collar. He was really hot under the collar. And so you're going to feel the energy of, he just wanted to make it clear, let us make ourselves completely aligned to God and not let culture or things from the past that no longer are necessary training wheels keep us from the freedom that Jesus has bought for us. That's really the core idea here. Hence the declaration of independence from that law of Moses. And he's going to approach this from a variety of angles. So let's jump in and, uh, and learn what lessons we can for us today by uh, reviewing their story from 2,000 years ago. So he opens in verse 1, Paul an apostle, not of men, neither by man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. And then you, you see he says, and all the brethren which are with me unto the churches, that's plural, of Galatia, this region of, of Galatia that stretches all the way up. And it's important to remember, Taylor's mentioned this before, Galatia is named that because it's named after the Gauls who have transported, have been transplanted rather into this region. They're neither Greco-Roman pagan nor are they Jewish. They're, they're this other group that's uh, settled right there in Turkey that many of them were very receptive to the gospel, but now Paul is so frustrated with them because he thought he had them firmly rooted in the gospel of Jesus Christ, and now watch how he, he uh, describes this. Verse 6, I marvel that ye are so soon removed from him that called you into the grace of Christ unto another gospel, which is not another, but there be some that trouble you and would pervert the gospel of Jesus Christ. He's saying you've got these people coming in, probably from Jerusalem, and he, Paul's frustrated. Why are you going backwards in time? He says, verse 8, though we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel unto you than that which we have preached unto you, let him be accursed. These are fighting words. This is not neutral. Verse 8, if you were sitting there in the congregation listening that day, you would know pretty, pretty early on, oh my gosh, Paul has got a message for us. And again, it's don't let the requirements from the law of Moses, which had its time and place, which had valuable purpose, God has now done an upgrade. And to use a really kind of pedestrian example, have you ever had software in your life and you've upgraded to a way better version or ever upgraded any product or service to a way better version? Why would you go back and force other people to live with inferior things that at the time were really awesome, but the world's gotten better? So let us be upgraded in Christ. That's what Paul's trying to get across. 
So yeah, so the Declaration of Independence isn't independent, it's rooted in Christ. You're independent of the Law of Moses because you've embraced the gospel of Jesus Christ, and we'll talk more about that in in, uh, a coming chapter here. Look at verse 9. As we said before, so say I now again. In case if you missed it the first time in verse 8, if any man preach any other gospel unto you than that ye have received, let him be accursed. So he gives it to him twice, double barrel here. And then he says, for do I now persuade men or God, or do I seek to please men? For if I yet pleased men, I should not be the servant of Christ. He's saying very clearly, I'm an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ and I'm on his errand. I'm not here for my glory, I'm not here for your glory or for anybody else's. This is for the glory of God and I'm on the mission of Christ. But I certify you, brethren, that the gospel which was preached of me is not after man, for I neither received it of man, neither was I taught it, but by the revelation of Jesus Christ. He's saying, look, I had to come and teach you, but guess what? The missionary for me, it wasn't flesh, it wasn't a person, it was Christ. On the road to Damascus, he's the one who set me straight. So I'm giving it to you pure, which is is a beautiful way to look at the role of an apostle, is to get their errand from the Savior Jesus Christ, and they are sent by him not by people, not by humans. As you read through chapter one, you will see a bit of a missionary journal, uh, almost like a, a journey log from Paul about where he went after his initial revelation from Jesus Christ. And some people theorize that while Paul had gone off into Arabia and actually out in the wilderness, or at least not in the major areas of the Greco-Roman world, that this was time for Paul to relearn, or better yet, to learn what was true. Remember, Paul was one of the best educated Jewish Pharisees of all time. He was one of the top students of Gamaliel. And for Paul, this is a big deal. He had learned how to teach and understand the Law of Moses. This is a massive change for him to say, the Law of Moses was a stepping stone to what we have. So I love the fact that we learn kind of subtly that Paul took the time to get directly taught from God, Jesus Christ, from angels. We don't actually know but I would like to think that he spent years getting personally tutored so he'd be prepared to teach this message when the call came. Yeah, and we'll get that here shortly. Look at verse 13. For ye have heard of my conversation in time past in the Jews' religion, how that beyond measure I persecuted the church of God and wasted it. I I was one of the chief enemies against this movement and profited in the Jews' religion above many my equals in mine own nation, being more exceedingly zealous of the traditions of my fathers. What he's saying is, you think there are zealous Pharisees? Well, guess what? I was the chief among them. I, I, I lived that religion. I was all in. But when it pleased God, who separated me from my mother's womb and called me by his grace to reveal his son in me, that I might preach him among the heathen immediately, I conferred not with flesh and blood. Do you know what this reminds me of? It's that phrase that uh, Elder David A. Bednar has used where he said something along the lines of, the greatest truths are generally caught, they're not taught. The greatest things you're going to hear, the greatest things you're going to feel, the greatest changes you're going to make are going to be 
inspired by the Holy Ghost. They're going to be truths that are caught. Sometimes it's in a little moment at the strangest uh, you're, you're in the middle of doing the strangest things. You might be doing the dishes or driving the car, or walking your dog, or falling asleep, or folding some laundry, and truths can be given to you by the power of the Holy Ghost, and they're caught, and no flesh and blood delivers that. And he's, he's trying to make that very clear. And he, he says, look, verse 17, I didn't go up to Jerusalem to those who were even apostles, but I went to Arabia as Taylor's been talking, and then I returned again unto Damascus. And after three years, three years, then I went up to Jerusalem to see Peter and abode with him 15 days. But others, other of the apostles saw none save James, the Lord's brother. And so, he's, he's giving his background here to say, you are relying way too much on horizontal sources of gathering information and gathering truth. He's saying, turn heavenward. Rely more on God than you do on other people. Now, does that mean that God can't inspire you to use horizontal sources? No, he can. It's just make sure that you don't have those be your source. Have those be a resource and have that be your source. The scriptures, the words of the living prophets, and personal revelation those are the source of truth. Everything else, including us, including every, every good uh, organization and good motivational speaker, any, any other resource out there in the world is horizontal in comparison to what you get from heaven. And that's what he's pushing them for in chapter one. I'm going to build on this. Some years ago, I was in a Sunday school class where uh, the teacher was quite beloved, pretty capable, and the teacher got released. And uh, one of the members of the ward community said to the teacher, uh, I really wish you would have spent more time talking. That was my favorite part of class is you talking. And this teacher said, well, if I'm doing the talking, then there's actually a lot less learning happening. That's why I would have you encourage all of you to come prepared and work together on concepts and share with one another. And it's this idea that if we all just spend our time only listening to other people, we miss the preparation of being aligned to God and having something inspiring us. This is what Paul done, has done. It's such an interesting little thing. He just breezes right over it, but three years. We have almost no evidence of what he was doing, but I think there's strong, indirect evidence that in those three years, he was getting re-educated. He was getting upgraded from his intense knowledge of the law of Moses and realizing what Jesus really had done in giving him upgrade for what the gospel is all about. And isn't that a beautiful principle for all of us to consider in our gospel learning efforts is that sometimes you can learn, you, you can sit in a general conference and you can hear something or you can sit in a sacrament meeting or in a Relief Society lesson or in a ministering visit and you can hear a truth that the Holy Ghost helps you to, to catch and you capture it in your mind and your heart, and all of a sudden it, it provides a framework or a skeleton structure that takes all of these other things that you've been learning for years, and some of them now have more context. They have a, a place to actually hang, and it's this beautiful perspective. That's exactly what Paul's doing. He didn't have to go back and throw away all of his upbringing in the Judaic uh, school of Gamaliel. He could bring all of that good that he had, and he just needed to restructure and reframe some of it 
to fit into this new framework that the Savior Jesus Christ had provided for him, and that's a beautiful thing. You don't have to feel like you have to tear other people's faith down. President Hinckley's invitation to us was to tell people, we invite you to bring all the good that you have. See if we can add to it. See if we can, I would add there, see if we can add some depth, some perspective, some framework for you to more purposefully and meaningfully uh, hang those experiences and those doctrines in a meaningful way to now move forward more deeply connected than ever before with Jesus Christ in a covenant connection with him. Using the analogy again of any time you might upgrade a product in your life with a newer version, those newer versions themselves are not so radically different that they don't have some connection to what went before. Let's say you go from one computer to a new computer, a TV to a new TV, a, a car, a bicycle, uh, lots of different services and products out there. And all of them, when they get upgraded, are rooted in what came before. What came before at the time was incredible and super valuable. But now that you have 2.0, there's no reason to force yourself to miss out on additional features and resources and, and opportunities. And that's kind of what we're talking about with the gospel, that there is no reason to, now, now Paul speaks strongly, but mostly to make a point, he's not trying, trying to say the law of Moses in itself was the problem, that people were required or being teaching others that you're required to live this 1.0 lifestyle versus 2.0 in Jesus Christ. Like Paul's like, why would you do that? You have so much more in Jesus Christ. You don't abandon this, but you also don't, excuse the term, damn yourself to this one version. you got to grow beyond it. And that's the freedom or the independence in Christ that Paul is preaching here. So let's put this a little further into perspective to finalize chapter one. He says, after this three years, verse 21 says, afterwards I came into the regions of Syria and Cilicia. He's from Tarsus up in southeastern Turkey. That's up in the region of Cilicia and just to the side of Syria. So he basically is going back to his home area and was unknown by face under the churches of Judea, which were in Christ. But they only heard that there was this, this miraculous uh, conversion that took place for me. And then he tells you in chapter 2, verse 1, Then fourteen years after, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas and took Titus with me also. That's a long That's a long time. Think about from the time of Joseph Smith with the church being formed in 1830 until his death in 1844. Imagine there had been some other apostle out there that God had called, living in some foreign country that Joseph Smith and others had really almost had never interacted with. That's a long time. 14 years. Which, by the way, is a beautiful principle for us to be patient. Salvation really is a long game. And these things sometimes take time. Don't expect that because you feel an impression today, or even if you have a miraculous vision like Paul did, that instantly everything's going to work out. It's 14 years for him trying to, to retool and, and get his mind wrapped around all of his previous learning compared to with his, his now revelation that he's had with, Jesus, with the Savior. And be patient with yourself. It's, it's going to take a while in many cases. So down in Jerusalem, keep in mind, there, there is this group of Judaizers who, and we don't know their full motivation. It could have been political. It could have been, hey, you're, you're doing us damage because Judaism 
is a, a recognized religion in the Roman Empire, and Rome may not be able to distinguish between you followers of Christ and those of us who are followers of the Torah, and perhaps they were saying, we need to keep things peaceful and in line. It could have been just a religious zealous uh, approach or a variety of other things, but they are demanding that these followers of Christ become circumcised. You notice in verse 7 he says, when they saw that the gospel of uncircumcision was committed unto me, as the gospel of circumcision was unto Peter. In other words, my mission was to go out to the Gentiles in the Greco-Roman world, and Peter's was to stay among the Jews. Um, it says, verse 9, and when James, Cephas, and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given unto me, they gave to me and Barnabas the right hands of fellowship that we should go unto the heathen, and they unto the circumcision. They're like, okay, you go teach among the heathen, but it doesn't stop these other groups from following in Paul's footsteps to clean things up a bit and make it a little more official and, and get these new converts up to par with, with the Jewish Christian converts. So, he then gives this fascinating story and it only appears here, and oh, how I wish we had Peter's side of the story. Yeah. All we get is Paul's. So, granted, it's going to come from, from only one side. And, and remember, Paul, when he's telling the story, is already a bit exercised about the Galatians being torn away into false gospels that these Judaizers had, had preached. So, perhaps if Paul had been in a calmer moment, he may have actually explained the story in slightly different terms. Yeah, so here you are in Jerusalem, the, the center of the, the Judaizer church, and up north in Antioch of Syria seems to be the mission headquarters, the center of the church for the Gentile missions. The three missions of Paul, they all either begin or and or end in Antioch of Syria. So this is where you have a whole bunch of, of intersection with these Gentile Christians. So, this is where this story takes place. Paul and Barnabas are here in Antioch. Peter has come up to spend some time with them. And remember, Peter has his, had his experience out there in Joppa and then up in Caesarea with Cornelius. So, he's had his own interactions with, with Gentiles who had not first become proselytes or fully uh, brought into to the laws of the Torah, the, the law of Moses. So, they're up there enjoying this fellowship in Antioch. And for context, further, in ancient Judaism, the idea of table fellowship with people who are non-Jewish could get you into ritual trouble, that if you ate with somebody who was not ritually pure, you would be ritually impure, and there's a whole process to become ritually pure again. So, a lot of Jews over centuries became acculturated to only eating with Jews and seeing a bit of an aversion to eating with uncleanness, as we saw Peter dealt with that. But apparently that long culture, perhaps from Paul's perspective, had not been fully overcome. Here we go, verse 11, but when Peter was come to Antioch, I withstood him to the face because he was to be blamed. It's pretty bold for your one of your your junior apostles to be calling the senior apostle into question in front of everybody, and he tells us this. 
Verse 12, for before that certain came from James, that translates means certain people came from James, from Jerusalem. These are Judaizers coming up to Antioch. Before that, Peter did eat with the Gentiles. He had table fellowship, and he's not considering himself impure. But when they were come, he withdrew and separated separated himself, fearing them which were of the circumcision. The the Judaizers. He's afraid of what the Judaizers are going to say and think and how they're going to judge him. So he's like, I'm out of here. I'm going to leave this table fellowship with you. I don't want to be seen eating with you. Well, here you get... We we could actually say, remember Jesus would go hang out with the publicans and the sinners, sinners. and he'd get in trouble over it. Paul would have applauded Jesus. Good job having table fellowship with the sinners. Imagine, and this is really hard to imagine, imagine Jesus at some point worrying about his reputation and saying, oh yeah, yeah, I actually am not going to eat with the sinners this time. Paul would say to Jesus, wait, wait a second, where did Jesus go? You're the man who recognizes the freedom that comes through the gospel. This is kind of what's going on with Peter. Peter's not yet Jesus. Now watch what happens. Because Peter, the chief apostle, got up and left the table fellowship, watch what the result is. And the other Jews dissembled likewise with him, insomuch that Barnabas also was carried away with their dissimulation. The Greek word there is hypocrisy. Even Barnabas, my mission companion, Paul is saying, the guy who spent all of these all of these journeys with me out among these Gentile Christians that we've we've baptized. Even Barnabas got up from the table and left because he's following Peter's example. Then verse 14, he concludes, but when I saw that they walked not uprightly according to the truth of the gospel, I said unto Peter before them all, if thou, being a Jew, livest after the manner of Gentiles and not as do the Jews, why compellest thou the Gentiles to live as do the Jews? Once again, we're declaring our independence from the law of Moses here. Why, why are we going back? Let's not do that. And then he gives this beautiful uh, argument here in verse 16. Knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law. Now, let's make something very clear here. When he keeps referring in Galatians to the law, he's not referring to all law, like law of the gospel or law of consecration or law of chastity because the reality is is the Savior taught very clearly, if you love me, keep my commandments. And he's given them these upgrades to the law of Moses. And he's saying, if you really love me, then you're going to keep these commandments. So, keep in mind as we go through this epistle to the Galatians, he's speaking to a specific people in a specific location at a specific time with a specific struggle, which is backsliding down the hill from 2.0 to 1.0 and starting to think, oh, maybe I do need to live all of these these 613 laws and provisions within the law of Moses. And he says, you're not justified or pronounced righteous or made right by the works of the law, but by the faith of Jesus Christ. Even we have believed in Jesus Christ that we might be justified by the faith of Christ and not by the works of the law. And again, 
In Galatians, you could just add to your scriptures every time you see the law, just write of Moses, and it'll make a lot more sense. That we might be justified by the faith of Christ, not by the works of the law of Moses. For by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. Now, you could stop there and proof text this and say, see, it doesn't matter what I do. As long as I just have faith in Christ, then I can do whatever I want and he'll save me. And we would say, we love verse 16, but we also love verse 17 and 18. Read on. Read all of the epistle. Let's not proof text an isolated portion of it. And the word faith here is not just a simple, I believe. Even when it says, believed in Jesus Christ, there's much more action and depth that goes into these words. You could look at faith meaning trustworthiness, loyalty. So, because of the loyalty of Jesus Christ to do what was right, even we have trusted in Jesus Christ. So, we have to trust that he has done something trustworthy to save us. And you're not going to act in faith if you don't first have this level of trust that Jesus is trustworthy to be our Savior. But there is a mutuality that is expected in the relationship. Jesus freely gave us the gift of salvation, and in receiving that freely offered gift, we are binding ourselves to an obligated relationship to also freely share love back to him and to those around us, to not just sit around and say, "Hmm, I'm saved, lucky me. There you go. So, you have a problem of pendulums going on here, right? You have one group that's come to these these Galatian converts saying, if you really want to be saved, you have to live the law of Moses. It's not enough to get baptized and to repent of your sins and to, to connect with Christ in that way. You also have to live these older laws. So, that's the pendulum on the one side. And what Paul is saying is, we're not justified by the works of the law of Moses. That's not how we get justified. That's not how Christ saves us. And then, to prevent people from swinging the pendulum too far to the other side, this idea of, great, eat, drink, and be merry, believe in Christ, and tomorrow I'll die and be saved. Look at what he says. But if, while we seek to be justified by Christ, not by the law of Moses works, but by Christ, we ourselves are also found sinners, is therefore Christ the minister of sin? God forbid. So, he he prevents that pendulum uh, extreme. And then he says, for if I build again the things which I destroyed, I make myself a transgressor, for I, through the law, am dead to the law, that I might live unto God. I igno- That's what faith in Christ and repentance does, is it's this recognition of there's the standard, there's the law that Christ has given me, not the law of Moses here, that's what the, the Savior expects of me, and I'm falling short, but I'm trying, I'm, I'm striving, I'm doing everything I can, and what's the solution? Verse 20, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me, and the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Everything you've ever learned in the Law of Moses was to point you forward to what Christ would do for us. So, why would we backslide and go go back in time? And he finishes, I do not frustrate the grace of God, for if righteousness come by the law, then Christ is dead in vain. 
If, if I can be righteous by keeping the law and when I break it, I just fix my problems and just keep moving forward, then I don't need a savior because I, working with the law, have become my savior. That was the doctrine of Sherem in the book of Jacob, chapter 7. That's exactly what he taught, was you just keep the law of Moses and you'll be saved. There is no need for a Christ, just keep the law and you can be your own redeemer. And Paul is obviously taking on that, uh, that doctrine here. So he continues on in chapter 3, and again, he's not mincing words. He uses words like foolish several times, being bewitched, basically saying, you Galatians, stay firm in the truth that you know. Don't let yourself be led away by crafty, logical-sounding arguments that might make sense superficially but really miss the essence of what Jesus has done to liberate us and give us independence in him from these old laws that now no longer are necessary to lead us to Jesus Christ because we have the law of Jesus Christ with us. So now he appeals to a different line of logic, a different line of reasoning with them. In verse 6 he says, even as Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Know ye therefore that they which are of faith, the same are the children of Abraham. You become the seed of Abraham. You become a part of this family. And then look at verse 8. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the heathen through faith, preached before the gospel unto Abraham, saying, In thee shall all nations be blessed. <laughs> now, do you catch the timing issue here that Paul's bringing up? Abraham, through your seed, all nations of the earth are going to be blessed. Well, Abraham's like 500 years before Moses. Abraham didn't have the law of Moses. So you want a declaration of independence for us in Galatian, for these Galatian saints? He's saying, guess what? Abraham didn't have the law of Moses either. He had the gospel given to him, and Joseph Smith taught that all of our dispensation heads in the Old Testament, Adam, Enoch, Noah, and Abraham, all had the law of the gospel. And if you read in the Book of Mormon, those, those early chapters where they've, they've come over to the Americas, they're very clearly seeing that the law of Moses isn't going to save them. And you look at the gospel taught in the dispensation of Noah with the Jaredites, Jared and his brother and that group that comes over, wow, there's, they, they're living the law of sacrifice from Adam's time, but it's not the law of Moses. They've got, they've got all kinds of things about faith and repentance and these beautiful connecting covenants with God. And so, Paul's point is, Abraham was blessed, but he didn't have the law of Moses. So, let's notice what happens in verse 11. He's going to pick up a theme that he also develops beautifully in the book of Romans. These two letters in the Protestant tradition, Romans and Galatians, they, they usually go hand in hand. Romans and Galatians, they get quoted more than any other book of scripture in many of, of the Protestant traditions. Look at verse 11, but that no man is justified by the law in the sight of God, it is evident, for the just shall live by faith. This phrase he quotes again in Romans chapter 1, verse 17. And what's interesting, if you go back to 
Habakkuk, the Old Testament prophet he's quoting from, Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4, it actually reads, the just or the righteous shall live by his faith. So it may be that Paul is dealing with a translation of the Old Testament into Greek that somehow is missing that word, his. And that causes a bit of confusion because it is true that we do live by our faith, our trustworthiness, our trust in God. But when we look carefully at the original context of what Paul is quoting from, it is we live, we experience righteousness because we get that from the most trustworthy one, the one who is most faithful, his faithfulness, the faithfulness of God. And this is back to Abraham when it says, verse 6, Abraham believed God and it was encountered to Abraham for righteousness, meaning Abraham believed that God himself would be faithful to his role in the salvation. And that just brings everything together that we can't save ourselves. We have to trust that God will do that work. And if we believe that and trust in that, that God is trustworthy, that counts towards righteousness, especially if you were living before the time of the works of the law of Moses, which really weren't meant to save people. They were meant to point people to the real salvation that we're talking about here. So this is important. When you see this phrase, the just shall live by faith, just remember that the full accurate phrase is the just shall live by his faith. And we're talking about the faithfulness and the trustworthiness and the righteousness of God. And, and that becomes very clear in verse 13, right? When he says, Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law. How did he do it? Did he destroy the law? No. He was made a curse for us. And then he quotes Deuteronomy 21, for it is written, cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree. So it's back to the Second Corinthians great exchange idea of he who was most righteous was made sin for us who know sin, even though Christ didn't know any sin, so that we who don't know righteousness could be made pure and holy. So he becomes cursed for us in order to save us. And then you go down to verse 16. Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He saith not, and to seeds as of many, but as of one, and to thy seed, which is Christ. There's one seed that's going to come from Abraham that is going to be the seed that brings life. It's going to die, be buried, and bring life to all of God's children. And then he says, verse 19, wherefore then serveth the law? Once again, the law, referring to the law of Moses. If, if this is all true, then why in the world do we have the law? Because you had this timeline. We have Adam, Enoch, Noah, and now you have Abraham. And down the road here, you have Moses. So we have Enoch who was translated, leaving the earth in a period of apostasy, Adam's and Noah's and Abraham's time periods ending in, in little dispensational apostasies. And he's saying, so why did we even get the law of Moses? Keep in mind, they've been in Egypt in apostasy, in slavery for 400 years. And he answers his question here in verse 19. It was added because of transgressions till the seed should come to whom the promise was made. Remember the seed that we talked about up in verse 16? That's Christ. So it's this placeholder 
until the real seed comes because of transgression. It was ordained by angels in the hands of a mediator, or in the hand of a mediator. Remember at Mount Sinai? Moses told them, wash yourselves, clean the camp, get ready, come to the mount. In a few days, you're going to be brought into the presence of God. And they said, no, we don't want that. Moses, you be a mediator. You go talk to God and come back and tell us what he, what he wants. So here you have this, the law of the gospel that Moses went up into the mount to get, and the people say, nope, we don't want that. And so you get this, they're not able to come out of 400 years of apostasy to come back up to this level. So what do they get? They get a stepper law, a, a step stool, so to speak, that gets them closer. They're not living the laws of Egypt in the law of Moses. The law of Moses isn't evil. It's good. It's given by God to help them because they weren't able to take this, this higher road. So it was given because of their transgression. And Paul is saying, I have preached to you what I have received directly from Jesus Christ. I've now got you back up here. Don't take a step back down. It's absolutely unnecessary. And stop listening to people who tell you that you're going to be in God's presence if you actually step, start walking back down the mountain. We're trying to get you into God's temple symbolically. So he says, verse 21, is the law then against the promises of God? God forbid. For if there had been a law given which could have given life, verily righteousness should have been by the law. But the scripture hath concluded all under sin, that the promise by faith of Jesus Christ might be given to them that believe. Everybody's struggling under the law. It is impossible to live those 613 laws, and it's impossible to live any of the laws. We're all under sin. That's why we need the Savior. And so he, he brings us now into verse 24, wherefore the law was our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ that we might be justified by faith. And whose faith? Definitely we have to have faith. We have to have faith. We go back to verse 11, the just shall live by his faith. So we go back here to verse 24, that we might be justified or made right or righteous by faith. His faith. That's exactly right. When you are baptized, you are made clean. When you partake of the sacrament, you are made clean. When you go to the temple and receive endowments, washing and anointing, you are pronounced clean. All of this is because of the blood of Jesus Christ. His faithfulness is what, is what makes us righteous. Isn't this what Moroni teaches? God, he has all these weaknesses or he has weakness and God says, I give unto people weakness that I can show them strength in me. That's his faithfulness. And isn't it amazing, this, this one word, that our faith is in Christ. I want to be more like him. He, he has perfect faith. So, I want to be more like him. My faith is in him. It's not independent of him. So, with that framework, look at verse 25. But after that faith has come, we are no longer under the schoolmaster. We're not under that law of Moses. For ye are all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Remember we've talked about in previous episodes where the word enduo in the Greek gets translated into put on. 
If you've been baptized into Christ, you have been enduoed in Christ. You, you've taken his garment upon you. Now, in our, in our restoration perspective with temple imagery here, this is phenomenal. When you go to the temple of our God, he invites you in so he can endow you, he can clothe you, help you put on or sink into that sacred clothing, that sacred garment. You put on Christ this, these pieces of fabric that represent their physical, tactile reminders every day that Jesus Christ is with us. Uh, and it's fascinating that he offers you that kind of a protection. And we'll talk more about that when we get to Ephesians uh, a few weeks down the road. And then look at verse 28. What does this all, how does it all culminate? There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither bond nor free. There is neither male nor female, for ye are all one in Christ Jesus. Are you noticing that the significance of this doctrine is he uses the word one over and over and over again throughout scriptures? The Lord does, and here Paul uses it. He could have said, you're all the same. He didn't, nor does, nor does the Savior use that word. He never says, I and my Father are the, sa are the same, or you must be the same or you're not mine. He never says that. The word he always uses is one. You have to be unified. Zion, one, brought together. Christ is this welding link in relationships, not just between you and God, but between us and each other. It's this, this fullness of unity, which means there's a lot of variation within the body of Christ. And he he talked about that in the Corinthian epistles, and it's beautiful. You don't have to be the same, but in our differences, we have to find ways to become unified. And isn't it beautiful how when the Savior speaks of the Godhead, he never emphasizes the separateness of the Godhead? It just kind of goes without saying when you see him standing on the right hand of the Father, but he never emphasizes that. He's always emphasizing the oneness that which brings them together, not that which makes them separate and distinct. And yet we live in a world that wants to constantly divide and contend and set up borders and then fight, as opposed to finding ways to renounce war and proclaim peace in our relationships as well as in our, in our international relations. Imagine the Judaizers are this little group right here saying, keep the 613 laws of Moses. Paul's saying, let's just break that wall down. Like that is too narrow. It's keeping people from fully being with Christ and being unified with the whole group. And I love how he concludes this chapter. He says in verse 29, if ye be Christ's, then are ye Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. He's completely bypassing the law of Moses. Remember we talked earlier that Abraham had lots of seed the most important seed was Jesus Christ. Okay, well, if you've all accepted Jesus Christ, you have been baptized in his name, that makes you his seed. Okay, well, if you're the seed of Jesus Christ, and Jesus Christ is the seed of Abraham, and Abraham was the friend of God who had righteousness because he trusted in God, we have that whole logical connection. So Paul is trying to liberate people through the truth 
of all these core promises that we begin way back in Genesis 12 with Abraham, down to Christ, and now to all of us. So now he takes it from another angle. Remember, this is a declaration of independence from the law of Moses, and he's he's using every, he's, it's almost like he's panicked to convince them, please stop, tap the brakes, don't go that direction. So now he takes a different angle. He says, verse 1 of chapter 4, Now I say that the heir, as long as he is a child, differeth nothing from a servant, though he be lord of all. If you get a prince born into a kingdom, until he comes of age, he doesn't get to rule. He is under the law of the, the kingdom, under the law of the house, and he doesn't get to decide what to do and when to do it and how to do it. But notice he says, he's under tutors and governors until the time appointed of the father. Even so we, when we were the children, were in bondage under the elements of the world. We lived under the tutelage of the law of Moses for 1,500 years. But when the fullness of the time was come, God sent forth his Son, made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. And because ye are sons, God has sent forth the Spirit of his Son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. You're now of age. You've, you've graduated from the, the primary school, and you can move on now take this, this higher law that is given to you. He goes on and says in verse 7, Wherefore, thou art no more a servant, but a son, and if a son, an heir of God through Christ. Now, the word servant in English comes from the Greek word that really could be translated as slave. Now, let's compare this to the law of Moses versus the law of Jesus Christ, the gospel of Jesus Christ. One creates a sense of slavery. One creates freedom and sonship or daughtership. And we recognize here that Paul is speaking with a single gender, but really referencing everybody. And, and slavery and servitude is alive and well in the first century Mediterranean world of these people. Look at verse 9. But now, after ye have known God, or rather are known of God, how turn ye again to the weak and beggarly elements, whereunto you desire again to be in bondage? Like the idols and fake worship of the Greco-Roman gods or whatever it might be. So he's not only just addressing being bound down by the law of Moses, but also being sucked into the Greco-Roman pagan uh, religions. So then he says, I am afraid of you. Not meaning he's scared of them. The, the meaning here is, I, I'm, I'm afraid concerning your welfare, lest I have bestowed upon you labor in vain. And then he, he goes down through, giving them more of this, this argument about, look at verse 20, I desire to be present with you now and to change my voice, for I stand in doubt of you. I, before I was pretty soft, now I, I want to come and I want to preach it hard to you, lest you, you go backsliding here. And then he gives you this in chapter 4, you get couplets, you get two mountains, you get two women, you get two sons, and he's making all these comparisons. So, verse 22, Abraham had two sons, the one by a bondmaid and the other by a free woman. You've got Hagar and Sarah. But he who was of the bondwoman was born after the flesh, but he of the free woman was by promise. 
And of course, he says in verse 24, he's using this allegorically to teach this message. But he goes on in verse 24, says, For these are the two covenants, the one for the Mount Sinai, which gendereth to bondage, which is Hagar. For this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia, and answereth to Jerusalem, which now is, and is in bondage with her children. But Jerusalem, which is above, is free, which is the mother of us all. So Mount Sinai, where the law of Moses was given, and Jerusalem sits on this mountain, the temple, the, the presence of God, and by extension, the law of the gospel given from the Mount of Beatitudes, this upgrade to the law. So now we get the, the law of the gospel in, in the New Testament. And he's saying, now we, brethren, as Isaac was, are the children of promise. But as then he that was born after the flesh persecuted him that was born after the spirit, even so it is now. That's what caused uh, Abraham to cast Hagar and Ishmael out into the wilderness. He's calling up this historical story to say, let's, let's not go that direction. Let's come to Jerusalem to this, to this higher law. Which brings us now to chapter 5. Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty. Keep in mind, Declaration of Independence is all about using your agency and having more freedom and liberty. Stand therefore in the liberty wherewith Christ hath made us free. The next time you feel constrained or bound down by the commandments, perhaps you could turn to Galatians chapter 5 and reread this and change our perspective and our heart to say, wait a minute, these commandments are given not to bind me, but to set me free because I don't know how to act. So the Lord in his grace has given me the commandments, and now I show my love for him by keeping his commandments as he has asked me to do and as he's delivered them. Behold, I, I, Paul, say unto you that if ye be circumcised, Christ shall profit you nothing. And then he goes down into verse 6, for in Jesus Christ neither circumcision, circumcision availeth anything nor uncircumcision, but faith which worketh by love. He's basically saying, look, if you want to do it, go for it, but it's not going to have any positive spiritual effect on you. So now let's jump down to verse 13. For brethren, ye have been called unto liberty. Only use not liberty for an occasion to the flesh, but by love serve one another. For all the law is fulfilled in one word, even in this, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. The, the law, he, he lists just the second great commandment, but we would say, love the Lord thy God and thy neighbor as thyself. And then in verse 16, he says, This I say then, walk in the Spirit, and ye shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. And then he gives all these ways that our fallen nature create all these problems. And no amount of laws will stop humans from falling into these things. But if you choose to be aligned to Jesus Christ, you are then empowered by him to be able to overcome the natural state where all these things that so easily we fall into then no longer become stumbling blocks. And, and look at the list. Gratefully, this is a 2,000-year-old list, and let's hope that these don't apply to us today, right? Right? Oh, if only that could be right. He says, the works of the flesh are these, adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness, idolatry, witchcraft. By the way, the Greek word for witchcraft is pharmakeia. It's, it's early drug use, it looks like, where, where they would be able to hallucinate or, or have fake spiritual experiences. Uh, hatred, 
variants, emulations, wrath, strife, seditions, heresies, envyings, murders, drunkenness, revelings, and such like. Wow. Uh, Paul's describing the first century world of the Galatians, but that's the power of, of Scripture is to have dualistic fulfillment of these prophecies to say, yeah, he could have been looking at the 21st century world right there. So, instead of ending chapter 5 on that note, notice those are the problems, those are the works of the flesh, so what's the solution? But the fruit of the Spirit in verse 22 is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance, against such there is no law. Have you ever been in a setting where you've felt inadequate, spiritually speaking, where you felt uh, underqualified or outclassed or felt like, I'm just not having spiritual experiences the way these people are in fast and testimony media or in this lesson or in these social media posts. Uh, I must be broken spiritually. I must not be celestial material. Um, many people go to church and they don't feel uplifted. They actually feel beat up because they hear other people receiving revelation and having these amazing spiritual experiences and then they look at their own life and their own family and think, yeah, this isn't me. Could it be a problem of our expectations that sometimes we're expecting the grand and glorious miraculous things? Instead, what if we looked closely at Galatians 5, 22 through 23 and said, if I'm filling the Spirit, I don't have to see angels, I don't have to hear the heavenly choir or see lights shining from heaven. But if I can feel more love, if I can feel more joy, a little more peace, a little more sense of long-suffering and gentleness and goodness and faith and meekness and temperance, if I can feel those, those are the fruits of the Spirit that he gives to us. And nowhere in that list did he say, the big, grand, miraculous. So, instead of feeling like, maybe I'm not having spiritual experiences, we need to shift our focus to what kind of spiritual experiences is God giving us? Because if you're doing everything you can, you're striving to keep the commandments, you're moving forward in that covenant connection with Christ, it's a guarantee God is giving you a portion of his Spirit, but we may be missing it we might not be recognizing it because we're looking beyond the mark. We're looking for the grand and the glorious instead of the fruits that he has promised to give us, which he lists here as well as in any other place in all of Scripture that I know of. So, now you get the conclusion between the works of the flesh and the fruits of the Spirit. Verse 24, they that are Christ's have crucified the flesh with the uh, affections and lusts. We've gotten rid of all these things over on this side because now we live in the Spirit. Let us also walk in the Spirit. Let us not be desirous of vainglory, provoking one another and envying one another. What an amazing thing it would be if instead of going to church and feeling beat up or downcast because you're comparing yourself to other people, what if you went to church to instead celebrate Christ's perfection and these gifts of the Holy Ghost as you see them manifest in the lives of other people and you're looking for those fruits in your own life as well so that we reduce the, the contention or the dissension 
or the pride looking up or the pride looking down comparisons, but rather we focus on the unity in the body of Christ, recognizing that these fruits of the Spirit are going to be manifested very differently across that congregation or across that group or across that family. And just expect it. President Nelson has said, expect miracles. So we ask for them, we pray for them, and we expect them. Now watch as we as we shift another pendulum the other direction of, of care and caution. Look at verse 1 of chapter 6. Brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault, ye which are spiritual, restore such an one in the spirit of meekness, considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted. It's this idea of when you go to church, if you're not sitting there feeling like, I'm not having spiritual experiences, if you're saying, wow, I'm having spiritual experiences, what he's saying is, if somebody else is being taken in a fault, either by the group or individually, what is our covenant obligation as members of the Church of Jesus Christ? It's to go and comfort them, help restore them. Look at verse 2, bear ye one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. You have, sitting in your congregation, people who are dealing with intense difficulties, things like loss of jobs, loss of health, loss of loved ones, loss of money, or all kinds, loss of faith in some cases. And I love this perspective of helping to bear one another's burdens. That's what happens in a society that is unified in one, in Christ. I just can't help but think about when Abinadi converts one man, Alma the elder, who then goes out in the wilderness, brings people, and at the waters of Mormon, they covenant to be in a community of love. And as we've talked about in the past, the word Mormon means love endures forever. And where do they make this covenant of love? At the waters of Mormon. And you hear Paul saying the same thing. We have been liberated by the love of Jesus Christ. Let's stay in that liberty. And it turns out, if other people are enslaved to pain and suffering and you've experienced the liberty of Jesus Christ, your obligation is to share that liberty with others so they can also be in that full love. So this is so powerful. It goes back to this, this, the two basic commandments. Love God, love your neighbor. Everything else will take care of itself. And let's conclude that, that portion with these two sides of the pendulum, the, the two uh, boundary points of this Christ-like community of oneness. And then he concludes by coming back to the middle, which is you. What is your responsibility, not just to other people, but what is your responsible as a disciple of Christ yourself? Look at what he says, verse four, but let every man prove his own work, and then shall he have rejoicing in himself alone and not in another. For every man shall bear his own burden. To the greatest degree possible, lift where you stand, President Uchtdorf taught. It's this idea of do whatever you can in your own domain to, to bear that burden so that other people don't have to. But if there's a need where you're weak, great. That's what the community's for. And you look around for others who are feeling down and you help bear their burdens as well. And then verse 6, let him that is taught in the word communicate unto him that teacheth in all good things. Be not deceived. God is not mocked. For whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. Now we come full circle as he's winding down in his letter to how he began. Declaration 
of independence from the law of Moses. And these old traditions that were for 1500 years, that was the instruction. And he's calling them back to Christ. God is not going to be mocked. He has given you this higher law. Don't backslide into the, this, these older, uh, older commandments. Yeah, don't imagine that God is going to bind you down to the gospel 1.0. He has liberated you to 2.0. Stay there. And if you find yourself backsliding, the great thing is we have repentance that welcomes us back up to a higher level. And look at his, his powerful uh, injunction here in verse 9. Let us not be weary in well-doing. Huh. That's interesting. Coming from the pen of Paul, of all people, who he, he has traveled thousands and thousands of miles and been through every persecution you can imagine, all for the sake of Jesus Christ. And now he, with some authenticity at this point, we don't know that at this stage of his, of his apostolic ministry, that he's already traveled all those thousands of miles. We know he's been at least on one missionary journey of at least 1,500 miles, and most of that is on foot or by sea, and that isn't easy. I think it's amazing that now what you see, let us not be weary in well-doing, Paul is going to take his own counsel into practice. He's going to do that as well. For in due season we shall reap if we faint not. And this is a guy, this is an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ who didn't ever give up. He kept going. And it's such a beautiful example. Now, he finishes off with a very fascinating uh, autobiographical note here. Look at verse 11. Ye see how large a letter I have written unto you with mine own hand. He's saying, look, I'm not using a scribe with this letter, and my handwriting is very large. That's why many people have wondered. There's, there's some, some guesses going on that perhaps the thorn in his side was he had terrible eyesight, that he was farsighted or terrible eyesight, that he couldn't see things up close. So he's saying, look, I'm writing with this large handwriting. This is me. It's, it's like his autograph. So now that he's, he's signing off, jump down to verse 14, he says, but God forbid that I should glory, save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world is crucified unto me and I unto the world. He's saying the invitation from the Savior is to take up your cross, to bear the burden. Well, I'm going to do it and I'm not in it for earthly reward. It doesn't matter to me what Christ chooses to give to me. I'm not going to make an offering on the altar of the Lord and stick around waiting for a receipt, like Elder Maxwell said. I'm going to be just grateful that I can make this, this offering. And then he finishes in verse 16 17. And as many as walk according to this rule, peace be on them and mercy, and upon the Israel of God. From henceforth let no man trouble me, for I bear in my body the marks of the Lord Jesus. And then he finishes with the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Be with your spirit. Amen. Such a powerful witness. I love how he talks about the, in my body, the marks of the Lord Jesus Christ are born. 
that he has suffered, he's struggled, he's been stoned. Now, thankfully, most of us do not need to do that, to experience that, to prove that we are followers of Jesus Christ. And yet, ultimately, we take upon ourselves the name of Jesus Christ. And in the last day, when he calls us up, what name will he use? His own name. And if we have known him, we will answer to that name and to no other name. So as we conclude today, uh, let us all remember this declaration of independence from all things that are old and embrace the new covenant that Christ offers us every week when we go to church and partake of the sacrament, every time we open up the scriptures and immerse in a deep, serious study of them, every time we go to God in prayer, let us embrace those opportunities that will serve to increase our faith in Christ, not independent of him. Everything is in Christ. He lives and he loves, and we leave that with you in the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Know that you're loved. And spread light and goodness. Mm -hmm.